Revelation. We're studying Revelation on Sunday morning. Revelation chapter 11. And then with our other hand, let's turn to Psalm 2. If you're new to the Bible, Revelation's the last book of the Bible. And in most Bibles, uh, looking for Psalms, you just open it up in the middle and you'll hit Psalms and uh, Psalm 2. We'll want to read from both sections. While we're finding our way there, just a reminder that on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, even on Father's Day. And uh, we'll be studying the last book of the Old Testament tonight, uh, the book of Malachi. So we'll pick things up in Revelation chapter 11, verse 14. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And then the seventh angel sounded, and there were seven voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. In the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. And then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail. And then in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. And then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, and I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is, but, is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your Bible. We thank you that it exists in human history. What would the world be like without your truth, without your wisdom? How unmoored it would be, how unanchored we would be. And Father, we can't speak for the whole world and the place that your word is, is given uh, in it today, but concerning our own hearts we can. And we say thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to study your truth and to study your wisdom and then to partake of those things and make them a part of our life and relationship with you 
and have the most outstanding life a person can live in this world unfold. Would you take and teach us about yourself and about your ways today as we study these six verses in your revelation? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we've seen in recent weeks, chapters 10 through 14 of the Revelation constitute a a parenthetical passage in which God takes the time to interrupt the chronology of the seal, seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments to give us insights into uh, events that surround those things and to spend a little time uh, revealing them uh, to us. Events like uh, the mighty angel, the little book that was uh, uh, sweet and bitter, the t- tribulation temple, the two witnesses of uh, chapters 10 and 11. And then here in these six verses, the Holy Spirit brief, if briefly breaks away from the parenthetical. And now he goes back to the chronology uh, of things and uh, before continuing with the parenthetical insights in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And he provides us here in these six verses with what is basically a snapshot of the remainder of the book. It is in brief what he's going to unpack uh, toward the end of the book. And so uh, here we have the seventh angel sounding the seventh trumpet of the seven uh, trumpet judgments. The sounding of the seventh trumpet now unleashes uh, the final series of seven judgments, which are the bowl uh, judgments, and then that brings a conclusion to God's judgment during the tribulation period. The offense that are described in chapters 12 and 13, which God willing we'll get to next week, are very, very intense. Is there a description of what uh, Satan is going to do, what the Antichrist is going to do, what the ungodly are going to, uh, what they're going to inflict upon the world at that time? And I'm inclined to believe that God wants to reassure the Apostle John, wants to reassure the reader of the book uh, of Revelation that everything is going to end well uh, here. And, uh, and so he gives us kind of a spoil alert related to the rest uh, of the book. And so uh, a spoiler on it, and maybe a spoiler alert would be uh, appropriate related to it. The passage is very, very encouraging. It is very, very encouraging to us as Christians who are not going to enter into the Great Tribulation, but we're going to be raptured prior to God pouring his wrath out uh, upon the world. And, uh, but even more so, uh, I, I think it's going to be a tremendous encouragement to those who become Christians during the tribulation period. Uh, the, the Bible is written, sometimes I, I can read the Bible and think of it only in the context of myself and uh, this age. But the Bible is written not only for us in this church age, but also written to Christians who will become Christians during the tribulation period. Now, if I were to become a Christian during the tribulation period, the first thing I would get into my hands is a Bible. And the first place I would go to in that Bible would be the book of Revelation. 
I would become an avid student of that book and I would begin to try and figure out where am I at this point in time in the progression of these events. Because remember, they won't be looking at them as something that's future and and, uh, learning it in the way that we are. They will be experiencing it. And so to know this is what's happening, this is where we are, this is what uh, comes uh, comes next, and and that's uh, that's how they'll be viewing the book, and what a great reassurance it'll uh, be to them. I don't think any tribulation saint is going to be troubled by the spoiler alert here in chapter 11 of the Revelation. The section begins with a declaration that the second woe is past, behold, the third woe is coming, and that raises the question of what are the first and second woes. The seven uh, trumpet judgments, the first four had to do with judging the physical earth. The final three of the, te- uh, of the trumpet judgments are also called a woe. They're uh, described as, as being a woe because they shift the judgment from the physical earth to a judgment that comes upon uh, human beings individually. They target mankind on the earth. And the first woe is going to consist of this release of these demonic beings from this uh, great uh, uh, chamber, bottomless pit, of, of to, to out of that bottomless pit into the world to torment mankind for seven months and, uh, or five months and even uh, death will not provide a, a means of escape from from that torment. And we're told all of that is the first woe in chapter 9. And also in verse 9, we're told that the second woe encapsulates the sixth trumpet where these four angelic beings that are fallen and now demons that have humankind not in the physical realm, not in the spiritual realm, has had any contact with, uh, with the darkness and the, the depravity of, of, of these four, and they will be unleashed on mankind in addition to an army of some 200 million demons that will be released um, at the same time. The third woe spoken of here speaks of the judgment that's released now with the sounding of the seventh trumpet, and it consists once again of those seven bold judgments which are described in chapters 15 and 16. You notice that with the sounding of the seventh trumpet there in verse 15, that all of heaven explodes in praise and uh, explodes in offering praise to God, also expressing gratitude for, to God for finally now this seventh trumpet being uh, blown and things be moving forward at this particular uh, point. You notice in verse 15 that there are personages in, in heaven uh, and they declare with a loud voice, literally a mega voices, uh, two wonderful things that are going to come to pass now. And the first thing is, is that the kingdoms of this world uh, have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. That man's rebellion against God uh, on the earth is all that rebellion been going on since Adam and Eve is going to be brought to an end. And the world and all that is in it belongs to God the Father. It belongs to uh, Jesus. It belongs to them by virtue of creation, by virtue of redemption. And now with the conclusion of the seven bold judgments, the entire world, 
Every city, every nation, every neighborhood, every apartment complex, every square inch of this world will move from being under the dominion of Satan and then move to being brought into a wonderful allegiance and devotedness to God. It doesn't mean that the demonic realm, the Antichrist and Satan, are not going to resist this occurring. Uh, they will resist that, as we as we see, uh, we'll see in the coming weeks. Uh, but the seven bold judgments are going to be the means by which God uses to absolutely crush that resistance. And as we continue to allow the Old Testament to inform us in the interpreting of the book of Revelation, these six verses that we read here this morning are deeply rooted in the psalm that we read in Psalm 2, which also describes uh, the end of man's rebellion against God, uh, uh, that rebellion being brought to an end. Psalm 2, verse 2 again. The kingdoms of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, uh, that is God the Father, and against his anointed, that is Jesus, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. We don't want God's laws. We don't want the restrictions that they place upon us. We're going to rebel against him and cast this uh, totally and finally uh, off of us. Uh, well, uh, in, uh, later in that same psalm in verse 6, and verse 6 begins with two very interesting words, uh, God says, yet I, in contrast to all of the, the uh, determined uh, uh, effort of mankind to accomplish that, God says, yet I have set my king uh, on, uh, speaking of Jesus, on my holy hill of Zion, Jerusalem, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And so uh, Satan, the Antichrist, the ungodly, they will not release this world uh, by means of bribery or by means of some kind of a, 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 a negotiation uh, with them. They will release this world because they have been forced to do that. And God will force them to do that. Now, this declaration of verse 15 is, is so, uh, to me, just so wonderfully uh, put to describe what's going to happen. The kingdoms of this world uh, under the devil have become the kingdoms of the Lord and his uh, Christ. And, uh, and all of the world, God's saying, is going to come under completely different management. It's going to come under God's uh, management. And he reminds us that it's coming. In fact, you might have noticed here, <clears throat> there in verse 15, that he speaks of all of this in the past tense. It is so sure from the perspective of heaven that he speaks of it as having already uh, been accomplished. 
And then not only will this kingdom be established and these kingdoms uh, of, uh, of the world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, but they rejoice and they say, and he shall reign forever and ever. In other words, this will not be a temporary change. <clears throat> this will not have a chance of going back to way, the way it once uh, was under the dominion uh, of the devil. God is going to rule forever and ever. And the Bible speaks of God taking this position in human history from one end of the Bible to the other, not just in the book of Revelation. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9 in the Old Testament. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and in that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. Well, we have an old saying in our culture that all's well that ends well. And it speaks of the fact that if the outcome of a situation is a blessing or it's pleasant, then whatever kind of unpleasantness we had to go through in order to get to that place, it, uh, the outcome compensates for it. Excuse me. You think about, and I do, Think about how blessed we are as Christians to live our lives knowing, not merely in our heads intellectually, uh, but knowing it in our minds, knowing it in our spirits, born witness to by the Holy Spirit, uh, and based upon the Word of God, that this is going to be human history's ultimate end. And again, I know I've mentioned it before as we've gone through the Revelation, but um, I know what it's been to be saved and not to be saved. And so you imagine, uh, 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 apart from the Lord, waking up every single day in this world that is shaking, in this world that is so obviously uh, fragile and not having any inkling uh, or any confidence of where human history is going or how it ends, thinking all of this is completely dependent upon uh, leaders that we elect or dictators that take over uh, other parts of the world. Well, to wake up in that condition would be terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And it would be, I think, more than any human being could carry. And it would lead to tremendous anxiety, or would, to quote another old saying that I grew up with, was it would drive you to drink. And I remember adults saying that kind of a thing. It's enough to drive you to drink, you know, they would say. And speaking of some kind of a stress of life that was driving people to alcohol in order to find some means of, of escape. And so from time to time, you, you know, I mean, back then where they say it'll drive you to drink, drink was the main means of inebriation. It was the main means of uh, of escape. But today you have all kinds of different drugs that uh, are available for the, the same kind of purpose. People escape into uh, pornography, they dis- escape into uh, sex and entertainment, all kinds of different things. And, and, and sometimes they, <clears throat> they come out with these polls and everything about um, how anxious people are today. Um, and then just the sheer amount of medication that's being applied to the situation and, and all that people are facing. And the younger the people are, 
the, the more uh, troublesome things are. Well, the world, I mean, you've had COVID, you've had isolation, you've got all kinds of crazy changes going on in the world, why people need to want to change the whole world or the whole country in six months is beyond me uh, in terms of a rational way of dealing things. But everybody has this sense that this thing is out of control. This thing is, is not firmly footed uh, on things. And so you see the anxiety levels that are, 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 are way, way up in, in, in the anxiousness that people feel. And it's, and it's in direct proportion, because the younger you go uh, the, the, in the United States of America, the smaller the percentage of the population is that believes in God, let alone is trusted in Christ for salvation and has a relationship uh, with, with him. It's important to realize that God intends that every single human being in this world would understand that he is in control of human history and this is where he's taken it. He has never intended that a single human being would wake up even one day in their life and wonder about how human history is going to uh, end. He wants every person to have a relationship with him and then uh, to know uh, out of that relationship, to know the glorious end of human history for the person who has a relationship with him as we are endeavoring to navigate all of the brokenness and all of the fallenness all around us. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, you have, you have been on every level uh, God intends to have a place in your life. It begins with salvation. But the blessings that are way beyond that are blessings that you need uh, in your life. This world will drive you to something to manage and cope and, and to try and escape. And, all, and the only something that is safe and will actually come through for you or for me, is to turn to, to Christ. The second response recorded for us here in this, uh, with this announcement that's being made at the seventh uh, trumpet as it's sounded is an expression of gratitude there in verse 16 and on into verse uh, 17. So you have these four and 20 elders. They <clears throat> begin now, they, they sat before uh, God on their thrones, we're told in verse 16. As we've seen in earlier studies, they probably represent the church in, in heaven. And you notice their actions here at this news that is spoken, this truth that is spoken, even before they start speaking. They fell on their faces and they worshiped God. Now, here you have gratitude that is off the graph. This is a gratitude that's way bigger than getting your first bicycle for Christmas. These people are really, really thankful that uh, God is going to wrap this thing up and get on with, with his plan, his beautiful plan. And so it's their reaction of the righteous to this uh, truth. You remember how the Apostle John, when in, back in chapter 5, when uh, the father has the scroll that represents the title deed to the earth in his hand, 
And nobody was deemed worthy, at least in John's understanding, to go to take the scroll and to release the seals, to redeem the world back to God. What was his reaction? He began to weep in the middle of that scene until Jesus came forward and he took uh, the scroll. He was weeping over the, th- the very thought that human history would go on indefinitely in the way that, uh, that, it, that it already was. The very thought that it wouldn't come to a righteous end. And so you've got this deep, deep gratitude that Christians experience at the truth there of, of verse 15. And it's a gratitude that cannot be kept inside. They, they found a necessity to declare it to God. And you notice in verse 17, they direct their gratitude to God with the recognition that he's the only one that can do it. He's the only one that can end the kingdoms of the world as they are and then make them his own. And they acknowledge it by declaring him to be uh, the Lord God Almighty, speaking of his omnipotence, that he, uh, uh, his, that he is uh, all-powerful, that nobody can resist his will and his purposes and be successful. They acknowledge him as the one who was and who is and is to come, that he is uniquely eternal. You and I are eternal in this room. Uh, we, ha- we are all going to exist on into eternity. The destination is what we determine. But that we are eternal beings in that direction, all of us are eternal. But God is uniquely eternal in that he, uh, he does not like the creation have a beginning. Uh, he is uniquely eternal all the way in time past and then all the way uh, forward. He has no beginning and he has no end. You notice what they thank God for in the end of verse 17. They begin their list because he has taken his great power and he has reigned. The imagery is of a province of a kingdom that has become rebellious against the king and uh, the kingdom and then that province being defeated and humbled and being brought back into line. That's what God is going to do with this world. And again, the tenses John uses uh, indicate that this is uh, past tense. It's as good as done. He says in verse 18, as they're uh, giving thanks to God, that the nations were angry, but their anger has been met with the wrath of God. So here you have the nations of the world. They're going to be furious with God's intent of overthrowing the kingdoms of the world, making them his own, and they will endeavor to resist that with a great fury, only to discover that God has a wrath of his own, and it's a righteous wrath which he will bring against them in all of his uh, fury. And so uh, Satan, the Antichrist, the ungodly, that will fill the world at that time, will be unable to resist his, uh, his wrath. And of course, as is the case, anytime you want to compare human beings, whether individually or all of us uh, collectively, all comparisons between man and God, man can never approach uh, God. 
So if you want to meet him on the level of love, that's one thing. You want to meet him on the level of wrath, you have no chance a person doesn't, uh, of prevailing. And so here again we see the roots of these six verses in Psalm 2. Because in Psalm 2 we're informed uh, in terms of God's reaction to the wrath of man. Uh, Does it concern him? Uh, Does it make God flinch? Does it cause God to have second uh, thoughts about all of it? Well, let me read it to you once again. Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us, and he who sits in the heaven shall laugh. That will be the reaction of God to all of it. He will laugh. And he will laugh at the idea that even the entire world united all together and the entire demonic realm uh, united uh, with it can think it has any chance of picking a fight with him and winning. And he calls the very idea, the very thought of it, a vain thing. Why do the heathen rage, the psalm begins, and the people imagine a vain thing, an empty thing, a hopeless thing that I can take on God or even take him on collectively and have any hope of of winning. And specifically and supremely of resisting him in giving his son and his Messiah, Jesus, the nations for his inheritance and the ends of the earth for his uh, possession. Now, through the years, I don't engage in the conversation, but through the years I have heard uh, people, uh, Christians, speculate over whether uh, Jesus has a sense of humor or God the Father has a sense of humor or whether Jesus ever laughed during the course of his, his uh, public uh, ministry. I know Jesus' ministry was marked by joy, but there's no record in the Scriptures of him ever laughing. It doesn't mean he did or he didn't. We just don't have it recorded. It must not be important for us. But those who contend that that he would have, of course, needed to laugh in the course of his life, being fully God and fully man all at the same time, laughter being a a part of, uh, and a blessed part of a of a human life, uh, as as the uh, Book of Ecclesiastes they'll contend, in everything there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, and so it'd be hard. Uh, to ignore that is, is maybe a, a speculative case for, uh, for uh, all uh, of that. But again, the Bible is silent on it. However, in Psalm 2, we are plainly told that God the Father will laugh in the midst of this scene. And it's not because the scene is funny to him. That's not why he's going to laugh. We are told that he will laugh holding them in derision. He will laugh because he will find the pride of man and the rebellion of man against him laughable. And why would he find it laughable? Because it is laughable. Every single human being owes their next breath to God. Every single human being is held together 
by Jesus Christ himself. In him, all things consist on a molecular level. And, and God numbers our days. As human beings, we can't lengthen our lives a day. We can't lengthen our lives an hour. We have no answer for death in and of ourselves. He's created us in the image of God. When we fight against God, we fight against... We're only fighting against ourselves. We've made a mess of the world, north, south, east, and west, and we've done it throughout all of history. And yet, in spite of all of these glaring weaknesses and limitations, somehow uh, mankind gets it into his head that he's really ready to fight God and win. And all of this is laughable uh, to God. And he laughs at the arrogance that's behind it, at pathetic men who raise their fists in rebellion uh, against him. A monumental sense of self-importance. I mean, we see a lot of self-importance in our culture today, in Western culture. But this is off the graph that I think I can take on God and win as if what they think or uh, do can make any dent in the purposes of God. Now, we speak of uh, certain uh, causes for laughter um, and certain things that are funny as being uh, laugh-out-loud funny. There are things that are mildly funny. You don't lose control with those. Uh, It may just be an internal uh, reaction to that. But when it's something's laugh out loud funny, and here God laughs out loud, uh, that means it's something that is really, really uh, funny. It's so funny you can't hold your action in. And so it is God who will not only have the final say in human history, but he will have the, uh, also have the last laugh. And surely when God laughs at this world, every attempt by man to say of God the Father and of Jesus, let's break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Surely, if God is able to laugh at that, then we can be free to laugh at it as well. And not only can we, but I would contend that it's something that we should do to even in our hearts hold uh, every such expression of this in the world today uh, against God, to hold it in derision, to hold it is only worthy of ridicule as opposed to uh, responding with fear and with anxiety and worry and carnal frustration and carnal anger. And so we understand that kind of a reaction because even witnessing the birth pangs that lead up to the tribulation period, which I trust we're uh, experiencing even today, all of that can be very, very unsettling. And we need to be reminded not to lose our sense of humor in all of it, a sanctified sense of humor that's able to chuckle at it, Uh, able to shake our head at the very idea that any of this can or will ultimately prevail. Now, Psalm, uh, in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 22, speaks to 
this kind of thing. It says, a merry heart does good uh, like a medicine, and it certainly does. And I think maybe one or two of us or more of us need to be reminded here this morning and maybe very much in need of a dose of that medicine and to experience the entrance of a new way to respond to some of what is going on around us as Jesus' return draws near, and a new way that is perhaps unutilized or underutilized within our life. If you don't also laugh at man's rebellion against God, if it's only righteous anger and frustration, then the full arsenal of your response is incomplete. And so when is the last time that you laughed regarding all of this? And it's to share in God's nature. Now what I'm going to share with you here in, in, uh, at this particular point has nothing to do with what we're saying uh, right here and talking about. But I did hear a couple of jokes this week. That, that did make me laugh. Nobody sends me jokes, and don't send me jokes. But nobody sends me jokes, but two people sent me two jokes this week, and, and people do send me jokes, or I get exposed to them, and I find, I, 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 I don't find all of them terribly funny. But I'm glad that they, they did. So people will send me jokes occasionally. They they think I don't have a sense of humor or it needs to be honed a, a little bit. But, but just, uh, I, I liked two of them. And when I get two in a row that I like, uh, maybe we can prime the, the laughter pump a little bit for you. Maybe you've, it's been so long since you've laughed at all, and, and this can help you. So there's a Scotsman. He's on his deathbed. I'm a Scot. So the man says from his deathbed, he says, who's here? And his son said, every one of us is here at your bedside, Dad. And then his dad said, then why is the light on in the kitchen? That's a Scottish, it's a Scottish humor on things. Now, this thing probably went viral and everything, but I, I, I don't always get, uh, you know, get what goes viral very often. But somebody sent me this and I liked it. And uh, it says, if you're feeling sick and sweating while you're filling up your vehicle with gas, you may have coroner's virus. <laughs> coroner's virus. That's the kind of humor I like. I just like that kind of humor. So I keep my day job here. But some of you uh, laughed, and it's been a long time since you've done that. Got a little bit of experience here this morning. I'm happy to help you. In verse 18, in terms of reasons for gratitude, the four and twenty elders, they express gratitude uh, that the time has come for the judgment of the dead. There's a whole world of people and a whole world of people in human history who have not received the judgment uh, that their life deserves for the life that they lived. I think about how many dictators have lived in, in wealth and, 
and all of these kind of things where their populations starve to death by the millions. There is no judgment that human beings are even capable of meeting out to a person like that this side of eternity. And it looks like so often these kind of people are getting skating on, on any kind of judgment. And here are these four and twenty elders thankful that the day is coming when those who have uh, escaped judgment that they deserved in this life are now going to finally be held accountable before God. He, he describes this more fully in chapter 20. They also describe, express their gratitude that the time has come to reward uh, the righteous. So to fully reward uh, the acts of righteousness by the righteous in human history. Maybe you have noticed as a Christian that when you do the right thing in God's eyes, that it's not always rewarded. Uh, in, in this life. In fact, it can sometimes rarely be uh, rewarded. As the old saying goes, no good deed goes unpunished. And very often that's the case for those that are doing righteousness in, uh, in, this, in this world. And so one day there's going to be that reward and that fullness of that reward is going to be bestowed upon them. And then they said further in verse 18, the elders express their gratitude that a time has come for God to destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, this isn't talking uh, supremely about global warming or polluting the oceans or things uh, uh, like that. We shouldn't do that. Uh, and how the, the planet is polluted by uh, greed and by corruption and, and, uh, and war and all of these, uh, these kind of things. He could be speaking uh, about uh, judgment now coming upon those that have forced God to bring forth the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, and the destruction that has been meted out on the physical earth in order to attempt to bring mankind to uh, repentance. And many will repent, but some won't repent during the tribulation period. But I think most likely it refers to those who have destroyed uh, the earth with their moral pollution and moral uh, depravity. And, uh, and you, those who use... God's gift of the earth, food, shelter, water, clothing, all of these uh, blessings, all of the eye candy that, um, you know, the mountains are and a flower is and an insect uh, is, all of these uh, kind of things, the natural resources, taking all of those blessings and using those blessings to now live in rebellion against God, the very same uh, God that provided these things to them and then to commit uh, a, 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 a wickedness in defiance uh, of him. And it certainly uh, includes all who've lived off of God's uh, green earth and then through history have chosen to persecute God's people uh, down through, uh, uh, through the wor uh, human history and then also right into the tribulation period as well. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us, 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now we close with this verse 19. It's an interesting verse because there's this revelation of the temple uh, in heaven. At this point in the revelation, uh, exploding before the Apostle John's eyes is the heavenly temple. And the doors of the temple are opened up and then he is able to see all the way into the Holy of Holies and there he sees the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the heavenly uh, temple. And the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God with the children of Israel during the uh, Old Testament and the, his dealings with them that involved the tabernacle and then, and then also the temple. And the gold of the Ark of the Covenant represented God's deity. It represented his holiness. Uh, also within the, the Ark of the Covenant were the two tablets of the Ten Commandments that had been given to Moses. So it represented his righteousness uh, and, and his faithfulness to his word. And here, uh, the opening up of this temple, the then see the Ark of the Covenant and the inside of the Holy of Holies communicating that the final bold judgments upon the earth will flow out of God's righteousness it will flow out of his holiness. It will flow out of his faithfulness to keep his word. And thus, the wicked are doomed. Now, the sight of the Ark of the Covenant must have been mind-blowing for the Apostle John. When King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquered Jerusalem and destroyed it, and then destroyed and looted the temple, he took the Ark of the Covenant from the Holy of Holies. And it was either looted by him or it was destroyed uh, by him, uh, but it was never to be seen on earth uh, again. When the second temple was built, when the Jews returned back into Israel and to Jerusalem following their 70-year captivity uh, in Babylon, when that second temple was built, it was built, but in the Holy of Holies, there was no Ark of the Covenant. When Herod then did his remodel, his 46-year remodel of that second temple at the time of Jesus, there was no Ark of the Covenant inside that Holy of Holies. And here the Apostle John, in looking at the heavenly ark, saw something that no Jewish person on earth had seen for almost 700 years. And all of it speaking of the certainty of, of this judgment. And that it wasn't coming out because God got up on the wrong side of the bed one day or that his, uh, his judgment is indiscriminate or wildly carnal, but that it is an exacting, precise judgment that comes forth from his holiness and because he is faithful to his word. And so let's take note of a couple thoughts here as we leave the passage for maybe some continued meditation or consideration for uh, as the day continues. So yes, the ebb and flow of evil and rebellion against God, it all continues today. But in the midst of it, there is 
ample, ample cause for the righteous to be thankful uh, in, the, in the middle of it. These four and twenty elders found uh, reasons that are our reasons to be thankful, no matter how bad the world gets, and no matter how bad what those four and twenty elders will witness one day in heaven. And then the second takeaway, I think, for some consideration is to remember that while it's far easier to simply get frustrated and angry in the midst of uh, the rebellion against God in, in this world, don't forget that you can laugh at the folly of it as well and be completely like God in doing so. And if in your life it is all anger and it is all frustration, it may be because we are giving things a weight and a significance and a reality in this world that they should never have in our hearts as Christian. A far greater weight than God intends. If there is not a laughter that's involved, that looks at it and is able to see those same things and be able to chuckle at the idea that man is going to have any hope of overthrowing God and having the final say in human history. It's all a part of the arsenal of what God has given to us in order to navigate the fallenness of the wor this world as we head toward that end. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, I pray for my heart I pray for everybody's heart that's here today. And as we see a, an enlargement of a rebellion against you, your word, we see foundations being laid in the nation that we live in that are intended to outlive a generation and to indoctrinate a next generation and, and rebellion against you. And as we see it, it produces a righteous anger in us. It produces a frustration within us as well. But I pray and ask for you to search us to see if we are not giving a greater weight to what we see physically before us on a daily basis, to that, than the truth of your promises and where all of this ends. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace to be able to look and just in a sanctified way shake our heads at these same things and with a sanctified amusement, marvel at the idea that people have that you can be thrown off 
and what belongs to you can be made theirs. And so, Lord, we pray that you would add this to the arsenal of what it is that we have to navigate and to manage and to process all of the world that is unfolding in human history and our time in human history and use it, Lord, for our peace and for our perspective. And I pray and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.